Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Body Justice. I can't believe we're already at episode seven. Um, This has been so much fun um, for me to do for you guys, to provide educational tools. It really warms my heart to connect with all these other people in the field to give you guys just some great, um, yeah, inspiration and recovery tools. So thanks again, and um, your support is so, so appreciated. Um, Just a couple updates before we get started. Um, So... I don't know if you guys have noticed, but my Instagram handle has changed. So it is now at Body Justice Therapist. So you can find me there if you haven't already. Um, And be on the lookout for some upcoming projects I'm going to be doing. I'm working on creating some courses for you all um, so you can access more in-depth tools related to recovery and social justice. Um, And today we're going to be talking with an awesome, awesome, awesome anti-diet dietitian. Her name is Maria. She is at cultural.food.freedom. She identifies as mixed race like I do. And we are just having an awesome conversation on the erasure of diet culture, um, what intuitive eating is, how it helps us heal our relationship to food, how it is our birthright, Um, And just some of the, you know, different issues that come up in our conversation. Um, So be sure to listen to her, check out uh, her Instagram, website, all of it. And without further ado, we will get started. So Maria, can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you identify? Yeah, yeah. So I'm Maria and I am a registered dietitian. Um, I went and I studied in uh, San Jose, California. And then what happened is after I became a registered dietitian in California, uh, my husband, like the day after I passed the test, my husband found out he was getting transferred. So then we went to Canada. So that's where we are now. (laughs) And so now it's me and my husband and our two kids, um, five and uh, two-year-old. And I just started to like, you know, really kind of question a lot about diet culture and that's where I found out my anti-diet message and um so yeah that was kind of a long explanation but yeah my I identify as she and her awesome that's so crazy that you ended up in um Canada (laughs) exactly yeah you're probably better off there than here oh yeah it's a lot but like I just miss a lot of things about San Diego and California it's such a great place I used to live there too so oh you lived in San Diego okay yeah (laughs) 
So how did you come to be an anti-diet dietitian? Did you like start out your dietetics um, career that way or yeah, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like, I, I guess I like, you know, I realized throughout my life I was very much into dieting and restrictive eating and it got to a point where, where I felt like I, I'm not good at this dieting. It must be something wrong with me. So how about I go back to school and get my master's in it and then I'll be the expert on it, which we know that's actually not the way to go about it. But then I went to um, get my master's. And then from there, I kind of had started to question a lot of messages and behaviors that I had growing up and throughout my life. And then after that, I had a lot of time once we moved to Canada and I had to get re-registered as a dietitian. And then that's kind of when I came across intuitive eating, the anti-diet mentality, and then it all just made sense and quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. So that's so interesting that you went into the master's program thinking like, okay, this is it. I'm finally going to like yeah. learn how to do yeah, this. Yeah, right? <laughs> Did they teach intuitive eating or health at every size in your dietetics program? No, unfortunately not. And that's the thing that I hear a lot about different dietetic programs or dietitian programs. Like it's not really advocated for, but <laughs> I do know a few are starting to. So it's starting to catch on that's good yeah that's I think so much time and energy and like harm could be saved if these things were just taught more yeah exactly and I do feel like a lot like from just my personal experience going to school and like classmates my fellow students um we all kind of had um uh disordered eating behaviors Mm-hmm. And so we kind of were all going to school for kind of similar, not to generalize everybody, but it did seem like a lot of times for me, it was a way for us to cope with our own um, situations too. Mm-hmm. Like wanting some answers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, can you share with the listeners just how you identify culturally and how that may or may not have had an impact on your relationship with food? Oh, yeah, it definitely has. So um, my mom, she's Korean. And my dad, he's um, half Mexican, half German. So therefore, I'm a quarter Mexican and a quarter German. And throughout my life, I never felt like I fit into amongst my Korean family, like my Korean aunts and uncles and my cousin. And I didn't fit in with my Mexican aunts, uncles and all those cousins. And um, even like when I was growing up in Seattle, there was a big Korean community mm-hmm. and I just didn't look like any of the other Korean kids. And I didn't really feel embraced by them either um, because I'm 5'10". I'm just very tall and I'm not a small person. And I kind of like instantly just took that, like the fact that I don't belong, I took that as um, a visual through visual cues, right? Because I didn't mm-hmm. look like them. So what can I do to control this? I can't control my genetic makeup, but I can control my eating, right? I can't control my body, or at least I thought. Mm-hmm. So then that's kind of when I would start to like um, restrict more, exercise more, count calories more. Um, so that combined with this feeling of not enough, it's, I couldn't win because you, if you don't address that situation itself of why don't you feel enough, then dieting and exercise that will not answer it either Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can relate to that so much, like the experience of being mixed race and feeling like you don't belong fully in any space. Um, I think it's just only natural that we turn to like these other ways to try to conform and to try to fit in. It's like a protective mechanism. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. And you talk on Instagram a lot about um, embracing cultural foods and debunking appearance related myths within the Asian American community. And now hearing like a little bit more of your story, it makes sense because that was exactly like what you experienced. What are some of the unique challenges you see in treating eating disorders in the Asian American community and maybe specifically Korean, whatever you want to speak to? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I guess in Asian communities, there is a lot about saving face. You never Mm -hmm. want to show weakness. You always want to be strong. And um, more like with the first generation slash second generation children who are born in America, they don't get that as much because they're more Americanized, but they have that message from their parents a lot who have immigrated from Asian mm-hmm. countries. So even when they're trying to reach out to their um, parents or like, you know, express feelings, a lot of times that could be pushed away or, you know, unacknowledged or gaslit. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is it comes out in other ways with other coping mechanisms. So, and, you know, disordered eating is almost, and sometimes is like a accepted way to cope with, cope with life, right? Just in our society. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes people can get a little bit more extreme and start restricting more um, because it helps them feel control, right? Mm-hmm. So when you feel like out of control, because you feel like, no one around you is hearing what you're saying. Um, and you are supposed to be a, a good face for your family. And you're supposed to put your family ahead of you, which is indicative of the collectivist society in Asian cultures and many other mm-hmm. cultures. Um, those kind of all like can really be the perfect um, combination to cause um, disordered eating or eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. You pretty much described my grandmother to a T. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I love her so much, but you know, she she was born in Indonesia and I'm second gen here and there is so many messaging around like just be strong, mm-hmm. you know, just deny your feelings pretty much. Um and you can even see and I don't know if this was your experience, but like within my lineage, uh there's totally like disordered eating throughout and I think a lot of it was trying to assimilate to like American culture um, and just a new culture in general. Like if you, if the mentality is we don't talk about feelings, then yeah, you're right. Like it just leaves the door open for other ways of coping. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So then actually Um, impacts it because then people might not feel like they can do anything about it right so it's also harder to perhaps seek help from a dietitian or a therapist because you're supposed to feel um present a base face all the time mm-hmm. right like even accessing treatment is a barrier because of those cultural kind of messages yes yeah and then there's like the model minority myth where oh yeah <laughs> Asians we're supposed to not have you know problems um which just I think really adds to that stigma of help seeking definitely yes definitely and you know I've noticed too like the appearance standards um in different like Southeast Asian cultures 
in some ways is a lot more um, rigid than even the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to that at all? Like, what, what's been your experience there, like, on your Korean side of your family? Yeah, yeah. Well, luckily, just in terms of my family, um, they've been more embraceive of um, a taller, larger body type because they are also tall for a Korean woman. You know, they're five seven, mm-hmm. which is tall, and so they actually had that experiences growing up, like not fitting into the shoes or the clothes that were available. Um, but then, what I do see in a wider scale is constant messages from K-pop bands and the me- uh, the TV shows where they put up weights and they put up their diets. It's like something, mm. it's a topic, and then they all applaud it. Or they have these um, kind of like these little challenges to see, like, who can, um, you know, who is smaller than a piece of paper, or, or like there's something, like, I don't want to go into details because it, it may be a trigger warning, mm-hmm. but it's just, there's some games or challenges they do. It's like you're comparing yourself to a piece of paper, and that's not right. Mm-hmm. So, definitely it's just everywhere it's like you said it's more rigid because everybody wants to um belong right everybody wants to save face and show their best side there so mm-hmm. if, you know if you're not that perfect ideal then you bear shame and guilt and you know it can be really hard on you and because you feel like you have to represent your family Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like we're carrying our own shame and like our families too. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And let's talk about like the, you know, how diet culture um, is responsible for so much erasure of people's cultural foods. Um, what's been your experience with that? Yeah, like definitely brown rice is a big thing, you know, white rice versus brown rice. Or just skipping rice, right? Like, that's the thing now mm-hmm. where people everywhere say white rice is bad. You shouldn't eat it. It's going to cause so many problems for you. But there's so many cultures in our world who have been eating rice for centuries. And they've been right. doing amazing, right? They've built this world, right? So it's things like that where all of a sudden people are told to not eat white rice, and then it's like, well, what can you eat, right? Like in the Korean culture, like white rice is served with every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And it's even integrated into desserts and snacks. So then some for some people, that could be something like, well, I guess I, I want to fit into these diets, beauty standards. So I'm just not going to eat these white, this white rice dish. And it's too tempting when I'm eating Korean kimchi or Korean other foods because white rice goes so perfectly with it. So I'm not going to even try or embrace these Korean cultural foods anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the substitutions for rice that diet culture gives, they're, <laughs> they're just not good. <laughs> <laughs> they're t- they don't do it. That's for sure. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like all these diet programs and like wellness meal plans, a lot of times they're really just not inclusive of uh, anything other than like the American diet, you know? And so it just, I think it just really disconnects people from their culture. 
let alone like their body and their own like intuitive wisdom with food. Yeah, exactly. Like, because there's like this ideal that I guess when people think of healthy foods, they think of one example is like brown rice, chicken breast, veggies. That's the meal, right? But then you think about other cultures' foods, and they have that combination too. It's not laid out that way. For example, in Mexican culture, they have arroz con pollo, which is chicken, Mm -hmm. rice, and veggies. And, you know, there's a lot of Asian cultures where it's chicken, rice, and veggies in forms of stir fries or fried rice. And they all give you the same nutrients, right? But it's not presented Mm -hmm. as, as clean eating, like diet culture shows yeah yeah diet culture has pretty much co-opted meals that have been around forever and kind of put their own little marketing spin oh yes yeah what do you recommend to clients who do identify as BIPOC and have lost touch with their cultural foods um a lot of that is like questioning it like so Mm -hmm. why what is wrong with my arroz con pollo or what is wrong with my um, my kimbap, my rice and seaweed? What is wrong with that? And then, like, you just kind of, like, think, you take on kind of an inquisitive detective mindset. What, is there anything intuitively bad about that? Is there anything that's going to hurt me if I eat this? And if anything, mm-hmm. what will it bring you? What are the positives? It will satisfy you. It will fulfill your hunger it will give you comfort it will connect you with your family right and how are those things bad right if you're always like trying to um conform to what diet culture tells you to do and how to eat but at the same time you're losing your own self so starting to really Mm -hmm. question it it could take a while but just starting to like question those things really helps Mm-hmm. And kind of getting the client to come to their own realization. Yes, exactly. Yes. And I find that usually happens pretty naturally in the process. Like people start adding in like foods that diet culture has deemed like bad. And then they realize it brings them joy and satisfaction and nothing bad happened. And then suddenly it's like this awakening of like everything they've missed out on. Yeah, exactly. And like what you pointed out of that adding the food. That's a great um, strategy, just always adding stuff, never really taking away, but just keep on adding. So instead of taking away a food that you think is deemed bad by, by a message out there, if you just add something that brings you joy or you know, brings you nutrients or brings you nourishment, it can, it's, that's a healthy way, a balanced way to um, integrate all different kinds of foods into your, your diet. Mm-hmm. I love that you emphasize it's about adding, not taking things mm-hmm. away, um, which kind of leads us to talk about intuitive eating. Um, can you tell listeners about a little bit about intuitive eating and how it helps us heal our relationship to food? Yeah, yeah. So intuitive eating, it's a great mindset or philosophy um, where you just are getting more in touch with your body in your hunger cues and what your body is telling you for so long a lot of people they eat foods based off of what external cues right so external Mm -hmm. cues such as it's lunchtime it's time to eat or 
the person next to me only ate one plate. So even though I'm still hungry, I'm not going to go back to seconds because I feel ashamed or embarrassed. Right. So mm-hmm. when you do that, you're not list. You get out of touch with your, your hunger cues and your body cues. And then that causes a lot of confusion and that can cause a lot of restriction and, um, later on binging right or overeating it later on and when people do that overeat because your body is so smart and it'll make you eat more right because it's hungry Mm -hmm. and it needs that energy and that nutrients and when that happens then for a lot of people they feel guilt and shame and they blame themselves and then they start punishing themselves for it with like over exercising or skipping meals so what intuitive eating does is it helps you get back in touch with your body and your body cues. And it helps you think of, or kind of helps you break down a lot of dieting messages that we've heard in our entire life, such as certain foods are good, certain foods are bad. And it helps you kind of dissect um, ways that can nourish you and satisfy you that are best for you and not based off of external cues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's all about just getting back in touch with kind of um, our natural rhythm and like what our body tells us from day one, we're born intuitive eaters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the culture that takes us away from mm-hmm. that. Exactly. Yes. It's really like what I love about intuitive eating is it just it's all about like reclaiming and coming home to yourself, I feel like. Right, yeah. And like when you're home, then like, you know, you are safe and you're comfortable and then you do, you learn what's best for you. And then when you know mm-hmm. what's best for you, you can be your own best and enjoy your life in the body that you are in. Yeah, I think that's an important point too, is it, reconnects us to our bodies and what I noticed in myself in my own recovery journey and like helping many clients get there too um, is that the more intuitive that we become more connected we become to our body and usually body image improves a lot just through doing intuitive eating um, because we feel more connected and we feel like we are honoring our body even if we don't love how it looks we are treating it with like care and kindness just through Yes, exactly. Yes. And there's a lot of misconceptions about intuitive eating, especially now with like diet culture catching on to it and now trying to like co-opt the term. Um, Can you speak to that and just some of the nuances there and maybe how clients can tell the difference between actual intuitive eating and and diet culture? Yes. Yeah. Well, so for... um, for example, what pops up is when diet culture takes that word is, I think one of Paltrow's coming out with a book is called Intuitive Fasting. We're like, yeah. what? Like, I haven't looked into it, but just the term fasting means that you, it's not, it's not intuitive, right? Because it means that you're not listening to your hunger cues, right? So what intuitive eating isn't just eating, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full there's a lot of other types of hunger out there, right? There's practical Mm -hmm. hunger. Like I know I'm not going to be able to eat at 12 because I have a meeting. So I'm going to eat right now at 11 just so I can get through the meeting and I won't be crabby. 
or there's mm-hmm. emotional eating or where you aren't hungry you just had dinner but perhaps it's someone's birthday or that chocolate cake looks really good and you eat it because it's a social and it's a cultural context to it and it just makes you feel better so I think mm-hmm. a lot of times um, the misconception of intuitive eating is eat only when you're hungry and finish only when you're full and for a lot of people that gets confusing because they don't know those hunger cues, right? Because they were told, they are told to ignore it the whole time through books like intuitive fasting or through different messages. So what intuitive eating does, it helps you get in touch with your hunger cues and help you feel comfortable with eating when you're not always necessarily hungry in your stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many other signs of hunger and especially if you have a history of disordered eating, a lot of times people have to have a step before intuitive eating, which is more like the mechanical type of eating, like, you know, eating every three hours and having, um, you know, a a dietitian such as yourself, like prescribe a meal plan to help kind of restart um, those hunger cues and your body's like natural responses. Is that what you see? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause we're like, once again, we need that structure, right? We're just humans that need patterns. Mm -hmm. And that's what one thing about diet industry, they are great with giving you rules and structure and patterns. But if those don't work with you and work with how your body works, it's going to cause a lot of problems for you. A lot of guilt and shame if you don't follow along with it. So helping as a dietitian, helping my clients have structure, but have structure in a positive way where they won't feel guilt and shame if they don't follow it exactly. And that structure, that's the rule Mm -hmm. of threes, eating every three hours, um, or, um, you know, eating, eating every three hours, and just being uh, consistent with that, that can help you kind of get back in touch with your hunger cues and kind of... Mm -hmm lose that anxiety that someone might feel if they don't have this structure and then eventually they can find a place where they are comfortable eating without following um, based only on their hunger cues and not on any other rules Mm -hmm, exactly yeah and just like to emphasize that for people listening like the eating every three hours and not cutting anything out like breaking all those food rules basically yeah Um, with this year being, you know, super stressful for a lot of us, um, I've noticed a lot of clients resorting back to old coping methods and then really beating themselves up for it. Like examples of, you know, more binging or slipping back into restriction. What's your advice in terms of helping, um, people lean into self-compassion for trying to find ways to cope with food? Um, and then maybe like, alternative coping methods that people can try out yeah well definitely coping with food is a great way to do it especially when it's so stressful we're in a really stressful time in our lives and a lot of times we can't even get out to do different things so food is accessible and affordable and comforting so it makes sense and it's not a bad thing um ways to help ways to find other alternative coping methods mechanisms can be things like journaling things like finding support through a dietitian or a therapist um a lot of times it's even like checking in with your body 
So when you are stressed, like you can speak more to this than me, but, you know, checking in with your body, seeing where you feel tight and um, kind of getting connected with it in that way. I talk about getting connected with your hunger cues, but there's also other cues such, such as addressing tension, which can really help. Absolutely. And I love how you just validate that, like, it's okay to eat for emotional reasons. Like there is a satisfaction and a pleasure factor that we're supposed to get with food and it's okay. Like, I think so many people beat themselves up about doing that because, you know, the diet culture message is that it's like wrong and bad. And they really pathologize that when in reality, we all eat for emotional reasons. Like eating is inherently emotional. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. It's all inherently emotional. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of um, connection with it. And when we're telling ourselves to energy in equals energy out and there's nothing else, other reasons for food, then what that ha- happens with that, you're going to feel shame and guilt whenever you do eat something that's not purely for energy. And with all the stress that's already happening, to add that on causes more anxieties and more difficulties rather than lessening this already stressful world we're in mm-hmm, exactly yeah I always teach my clients you know like it's okay to cope with food and just like any coping skill we want a variety of coping yeah. skills because if that one isn't available at one point then um, we need alternatives and if we were only using one way to cope with something all the time there's going to be an imbalance so I think I like to emphasize that too, like just having a variety of skills and food can be one of yeah, those. Yeah, that's great. Yes, yes. What do you think um, needs to change in the field of dietetics and eating disorders in order to become more inclusive and justice oriented? Yes. Well, the path to become a dietitian is very expensive and is very Um, exclusive to a lot of people Um, first you have to get a bachelor's um, and then they're soon requiring that people get a master's and then from there then you have to do a nine-month internship which is unpaid and not just Mm -hmm. unpaid but you have to pay for that internship So, so you're paying to just do free work and then you're also during that internship it's heavily emphasized to not take on another job. And if someone has to take on another job, they are looked down upon as you are not being as dedicated. And so then mm-hmm. people are like, I can't afford rent. I can't afford food. And that's a big barrier many people, right? So if you look at the diverse makeup of the um of the dietitians of in America in the United States, eighty one percent are white females, and mm-hmm. it's it's very lacking in, in the rest of the minorities. So, really, a big thing is if you help if we help with um, getting rid of financial barriers, then a lot more people would be able to become dietitians and spread their inclusive messages to the public. Yeah, there's so much like gatekeeping, um, just be in terms of the barriers to even get in a program and then be able to sustain a program when you're not having any money coming in. And like you said, like actually paying to do work. Mm-hmm. 
um, yeah, it just really keeps marginalized people out yes. of that. Yeah. It's the same thing in the therapy field too, you um, know, <laughs> we have so many unpaid internships and like you said, like you're even paying for tuition right. during that internship. So it's, yeah, there's so much that needs to change. Um, one kind of fun question for you. Um, I really love asking people this since it's like the whole motto of my podcast, but what does body justice mean to you? Body justice means to me that whatever body you are in, you are treated with respect and kindness and you can go to seek help in a hospital and not have any biases against you, your body or your skin color or your class background. And you receive treatment that treats you for your current, you get a diagnosis and treatment that help you for the problem that you actually have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so important. Um, thank you for sharing that. I know that no. <laughs> wasn't on our <laughs> list, but <laughs> kind of put her on the spot, you guys. Um, so how can people find you and work yeah. with you? So I am a virtual dietitian and I work with all my clients through Zoom, via Zoom. And I can be found on Instagram and my handle is cultural food freedom. Awesome. And just to clarify, because I know you said like you got your um, your license in Canada now. Do you still see clients in California? Yes, yes. I have I still have both licenses. And it is um, the way that I Certain states are more particular, but a good majority of states in the U.S. allow California dietitians to work with them as well. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I will have to refer yeah. you some clients. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Maria. I've really enjoyed this conversation. You brought to light so many important issues. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. If you guys are enjoying my content, I would love for you to consider sponsoring my work. Now, I know this sounds like super fancy, but it's really not. It just means subscribing to a monthly donation for my content, as little as 99 cents. Um, Anything helps me in order to continue taking the time to create wonderful content for you all. I really put my heart and soul into this work. Um, So there will be a link in the show notes on how to do this. And of course, you could cancel at any time. Um, Thanks so much as always for tuning in today and to yet another episode of Body Justice.